Please open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 8. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, there's one in the pew in front of you. And um, I noticed going through Luke chapter 8, there are actually seven lessons in this one chapter. Seven amazing lessons that we could actually spend a lot more time with. But I'm just going to give you an overview of these seven. The first lesson is in the first three verses. So that's where we're going to be. Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him. And also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out, Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household, and Susanna and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. This is significant for several reasons. In that culture and in those days, women were not high on the social ladder. They weren't high legally. They weren't high religiously. They weren't high socially. Um, In some courts, women couldn't testify in courts of law because their testimony was considered invalid. I mean, they were really looked at as second-class citizens in a lot of areas. The cool thing about Jesus is he elevated women. They were amongst his closest followers. And you probably noticed this, but let me draw your attention to it again. They supported his ministry. They were the financial underpinning of the work of Jesus Christ. Where would the gospel have gone without these women? It wouldn't have. They're not mentioned a lot, but when they're mentioned, it's extremely powerful. At the cross, at the empty tomb, supporting the work of the ministry. I found this cool. It says that Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household, was one of Jesus' followers. So even though Herod wasn't following Jesus, word was getting back to Herod's household about all that he was doing, undoubtedly through the wife of the chief steward of his household. John the Baptist had influence in Herod's household. Jesus has influence in Herod's household. You never know the people you're ministering to or with who they're bringing the message back to. How many of you have ever heard of that thing, six degrees of separation? Let me see your hands. Do you believe it? I I do. I mean, maybe it's not exactly right, but the the amount of people on this planet you think is vast, but you just talk to a couple people and they know people. I know a lot of people who know a lot of famous people. (laughs) Just that close, but not quite there. I know a guy, he's a dear friend of mine, who spends the night with Benjamin Netanyahu who knows like two dozen senators and hangs with them. I don't know any senators or Benjamin Netanyahu, but I know a guy who knows them. So I'm that close. So Jesus didn't know Herod, and Herod didn't know Jesus. But Jesus' influence got to Herod through this woman. Pretty impressive. So the first lesson I wanted to share with you, just a taste, is the lesson on women. And so if you've got your notes, you know, you can start filling that stuff out. Second lesson is a lesson on faith. That's the parable of the sower, verses 14 through 18. But we looked at that, just that, last week. We took a whole week to look at that. So the first lesson, a lesson on women. Second, a lesson on faith, the parable of the sower. That was last week. Third lesson is a lesson on family. And this comes from verses 19 through 21. Now, Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him, but they were not able to get near him because of the crowd. Wow. It's like he's a rock star. 
You know, paparazzi everywhere. Nobody can get in because there's too many people. His family's trying to get in to see him, but they couldn't get in. Too many people. So someone told him, someone up close, said, hey, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to see you. And he didn't drop everything he was doing and run out and see him. Listen to what he said. My mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. What Jesus is saying is that the family of faith is elevated over the blood family. It's more important. Obviously, if you had a family of faith, that was your blood family, that would be the best. But there are a lot of people who come to faith and then their family starts mocking them, despising them, belittling them, you know, treating them like the black sheep and the stepchild kind of a thing. And they kind of lose their families. And then they come to a church like Book of Life Community Church and they get a new mom, two or three of them, and a new brother, four or five of them. You know, there's a passage of scripture that says there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Most of you know that. You have friends that you're closer to than your actual brothers. So Jesus isn't putting family down. He's just letting you know that those who obey God are his family. That's the family that matters to him. And I think that's pretty cool. So the first point, Jesus elevates people of faith over blood relatives. Second point, Mary was a blood relative. That may not mean anything to you, but if you're Catholic or were raised in a Catholic environment where Mary's at the top of the ladder, she's even over Jesus in most Catholic psyche. Jesus says, no, that's not the case. Those who do the will of God, that's my family. But this, this is his mother. There is a woman who praised his mother in his presence. And listen to what he said to her. I'm in Luke 11, 27 to 28. Listen. As Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. Basically, she's saying, Blessed is Mary. And here's what Jesus said. Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Ba-bam. Jesus wasn't putting Mary down. He was just saying the proper place for people is my family, my people. The ones I respect and elevate are those who hear the word of God and do it. So that means all of you who follow Jesus are just as special to him as Mary. You're his family. Third, a fourth lesson. It's another lesson on faith. So we have the parable of sower, lesson on faith. This fourth one is also on faith. This is when Jesus calms the storm. I did this yesterday, and the whole church started singing with me. Put your hand in the hand of the man who stills the waters. Put your hand in the hand of the man who calms the sea. You guys are awesome. And you're all as old as I am, because you know that song. I love that song. It's talking about fellowshipping with Jesus because he's the man who calms the waters. Can you imagine the situation? Let's go there. One day Jesus said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. There are so many evidences that the Bible is true that we take most of them for granted. Here's a case in point. If you didn't know anything about the geography, 
or Israel. And you said something like, they were in a fishing boat, and a squall came upon the lake, and they were in great danger. How can you be in great danger on a lake in a boat when the lake's only eight miles long? So if you're in three miles doing your fishing, all you got to do is come back three miles. What's the big deal? Who would ever believe such a thing? It must be a fairy tale, just to make it sound exciting. So I'm on the Sea of Galilee. I'm with a boat captain on his boat. And I said, you know, there's a story in the Bible about Jesus coming the storm, you know. Tell me about these storms. Are they really that bad? He said, oh, yeah. I was in a motorboat, and a storm hit out of nowhere. And I was only a couple of miles from shore. Took me hours to get back to shore. With the motorboat. What, two miles, three miles, four miles at the most? Because if it's an eight mile, it's its fattest part, and you're in the dead middle, it only is four miles. Hours to get back. I thought I was going to die, he said. See, Galilee, it's unique. You're not going to find that at Lake Patagonia. It's just not going to happen. But at the Sea of Galilee, it does happen. People who fish that sea take their lives into their, th that sea. It's, it's a pond. Eight miles. I mean, that's, that's it doesn't even rate on the, on the, the, the lake scale in Michigan. You know what I'm saying? But it just shows you, the guys are just telling the true story, that you can't make this stuff up. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. He got up and he rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. Okay, I'm putting myself in the boat. Jesus is so tired, he's sleeping. The boat starts to rock a little at first, and that probably helped him sleep. But you think by the time they're ready to be capsized, he would have woken up. Why didn't he? I don't know. I've got a few ideas. You read through the Gospels, you will see that he worked himself beyond exhaustion. He worked tirelessly. And every time he tried to get away, people followed him, and he still ministered to them. He was probably just plain old exhausted. Nothing was going to wake him up. He was sleeping like a rock. Plus, we often wake up because we're disturbed. What's he got to worry about? He's the Son of God. In fact, that's what the disciples asked him in, in one of the Gospels. Don't you care? We're going to drown. Sure, he didn't care. He wasn't worried about it. Then he gets up. So how does he get up? He, he's laying there. You know, these guys are freaking out. And they go and they grab him awake. And then what's he do? What? What? Don't you care we're going to drown? He looks around. And then, of course, if you watch the movie version, it's kind of like this. <laughs> Peace. Be still. Somehow, I don't think Jesus was the dramatic type. And I don't think he had to muster up the energy to calm the storm. He probably just woke up and went, Stop. Done. And I'm of the opinion that it's calmed right away. Which I'm sure totally freaked out the disciples. It wasn't one of those three-hour calms where you can make an explanation for it might have happened that way. It was like, whoa, where'd the storm? How'd that happen? It's like somebody flipped the channel on the TV. That's how I envision it anyway. And it freaked them out. This is what they said. First of all, Jesus said to them, where's your faith? Why were you afraid? Jesus, he's always teaching. Wake him up out of his sleep and say, why were you afraid? Where's your faith? 
And I can't help but wonder, if they had faith, how would the situation have been different? Okay, the storm's coming, we're going to die. Should we wake him up? Well, he's sleeping kind of sound, you know, he worked so hard. Yeah, but if he doesn't, we might die. Yeah, and we're kind of not done with our ministry yet. All right, let's go wake him up. Hey, Master, we hate to bother you, but, you know, I don't know if you want us to die right now or not, so we thought we'd wake you up. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Here's what I think. Um, first of all, they wouldn't have been afraid. And second of all, he said, where's your faith? Maybe he, they wouldn't have had to wake him up at all. I'll talk about that in a minute. Maybe they could have calmed the storm. Right? Peter walked on water. Maybe they didn't have to bother him at all. I'll get back to that in a minute, but before I do, I want to ask you the same question. Where's your faith? I keep telling myself I want to be brave like Jesus wants us to be. I want to be trusting. I don't know if I am, but I want to be. So I'm on the plane, not too long ago, flying to Texas, and we hit some turbulence. First thought is, no, I let me down to sleep. Yeah, I start praying. And then I'm thinking, you know what? Okay, I prayed. I'm good. I just enjoyed the rest of the ride. It's like Disneyland. I thought it was a great ride. And my prayer was, if we go down, Lord, give me an opportunity to preach the gospel to everybody on the plane before we crash, please. That was my prayer. Am I always this brave? No. But I was then. And I was then enjoying the ride. It was kind of fun. The plane was bouncing around. Usually they're so smooth and boring. This was like a ride. It was fun. So next time you're at 30,000 feet and your plane goes... And the pilot, uh, mayday, mayday, uh, buckle in. Just go like this. Because what's the worst that can happen? You'll wake up in heaven. Bummer, you. Right? And in fact, you might get a good, I don't know how long it takes to decline, you know, at that altitude, at that angle, to hit 30,000 feet, but you might have enough time to share the gospel with everybody around you before you go. So what's the worst that could happen? The worst is you could crash and you go to heaven. Or the plane will level out. God will determine which it's going to be. You don't have to worry about it. It's above your pay grade. And I think that's what Jesus was telling them. Well, what's your faith? Don't worry about it. You know, there are people who fall out of airplanes and live. Did you know that? Shoot, malfunction, and they hit the ground at, you know, vert, almost terminal velocity. And they go, ow. And they go to the hospital and get their bones set. And they tell you, yeah, I fell out of an airplane and lived. And then there's people who change their light bulb at home on a step stool, fall down, and die. You're not going to die until God wants you to die. And you're going to live as long as he wants you to live. So don't worry about it. I keep telling myself. So he said, where's your faith? He told them elsewhere, he said, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. So I went on the internet to show you what the typical pastor will show you is the typical mustard seed. And I got a picture. So Jesus says, if you have the faith of a grain of mustard seed, you can move a mountain. Now you're probably thinking, that's pretty stinking small. But unfortunately, American pastors are doing you a disservice. Because that's an American mustard seed. Jesus was Israeli. Let me show you Israeli mustard seeds. Next slide. Do you see them? How many do you see, Joseph? 
How many do you see? You see two? Seven? You see seven? How many do you see? Eight? Let's zoom in. How many do you see now? Five? There's dozens and dozens and dozens in my hand. Can't see them? I've got the same picture on my phone after church. If you want to see it, ask me. I'll show it to you and zoom in really close. The, they fall into the cracks of your hand, like your fingerprint cracks in your hand. That's how small they are. They, they lodge into those cracks. They're so small, the, they're virtually the smallest thing the human eye can see is pretty much what it comes down to. The ones you counted, those are the big ones. Those are the granddaddies. And those are so hard to see that you really got to zoom in to look at them. I have a handful of them. So, good news and bad news. Jesus said to his disciples, if you had the faith of a mustard seed, you could move a mountain. That's the bad news because they weren't moving any mountains. Their faith was so small, they couldn't even calm a storm. But I said, there's good news too. The good news is, the bar isn't set very high. <laughs> we don't need much faith to accomplish amazing things. Microscopic faith, faith you can barely see. If we could just get that much faith, common storms, walking on the water. Please leave Mount Lemon alone, though. I like it just where it is. Lesson number five. A lesson on Jesus' authority and power. These disciples, man, they were on a roller coaster ride. They got on the boat. The boat's about ready to sink. Jesus stills the storm. They freak out. They say, what kind of man is this? They don't even know yet who he is. He's still amazing and surprising them. They still don't have it figured out that he's God in human flesh. They're asking, what kind of man is this that can storm, still the storm? So they get across the lake now, and some demon-possessed crazy man greets them. It's like, welcome to the ministry of Jesus. You just want to tear out your hair, run screaming, and go home. Crazy day. Talk about the emotional roller coaster. One freak out after another, one amazement after another. This demon-possessed guy had a reputation. First of all, he was naked. I'm sure that's what you want to see, a long-haired, dirty, naked guy running at you screaming in 12 different languages all at once. You know, talk about a horror movie. Wow, all they got to do is make a movie out of this guy. That'd be the horriest of all the horror movies because it's real. It's true. They tried to chain this guy and control him. He broke the chains. He was super, superhuman, supernaturally strong. And he hung out, amongst all places, at the cemetery. Can't you just see that as like a B-movie? Let's go to the cemetery. Okay, bring the camera. Let's freak out Joey. And all of a sudden, this guy shows up. Well, what this guy does when he shows up, he runs at Jesus. The disciples were probably running the other way. Jesus just stands there, and this guy falls down at his feet and begs him for mercy. Now, we learn in a couple of minutes that he's loaded with demons, not just one, but there's a legion of demons in him. So what you are seeing, people, is the host of Hades begging Jesus for mercy. They're not fighting him. They're not challenging him. You cannot challenge God. You can take all the demons and the devil, and they can declare war against God, and God will blink, and they're evaporated. You know? They are nothing to God. Don't ever question God's power. They just fell at Jesus' feet 
That's all they could do. They are helpless and harmless in the presence of the Son of God. That's the one we serve. Everybody else is serving those guys. You choose your sides and choose wisely. So they fall at Jesus' feet. And they say, please don't torment us. Don't cast us into the abyss. Can we, can we enter into the swine? They knew Jesus was going to cast them out. They knew Jesus was going to heal that man. Because that's what Jesus does. He delivers people, especially from demons. And so Jesus gave them what they asked for. Does the love of God know no bounds? Demons asked him for a favor, and he granted it. Wow. I would have just said no just because they wanted it, just to spite them. They're demons. Don't give a demon what he wants. Demon gave, Jesus gave him what he wants. But it's funny, he said, don't cast us into the abyss. So they go into the swine, the herd of swine, and the herd of swine goes and drowns himself in the abyss. <laughs> little play on words maybe, perhaps. But the ancients saw deep water as the gateway to Hades. So it's more than just a play on words. Kind of, pigs were smart. They were giving these guys a ride home. <laughs> and he killed all the pigs, which isn't bad because this should have been Jewish territory. What's a herd of swine doing on Jewish territory? So he got rid of two problems all at once and invented deviled ham all at the same time. <laughs> so number five is a lesson on Jesus' authority and power. Number six is a lesson on faith and power. Back to faith. This is what, the third lesson on faith already in this chapter? And also power. So uh, we, I'd shown you that the female disciples funded the work of the ministry, how Jesus elevated the women in his ministry, how the male disciples lack the faith of even a mustard seed. And now we're going to look at the faith of a woman who happens to have the faith of a mustard seed. In this chapter, men are being shown up by the women in a very subtle, mild way. So I guess the guys can say face and the women don't get too arrogant. But this story is just like women, men, women, men. Women, men. And it's appropriate because in society, it's always men, women, men, women, men, women. So Jesus is showing them that uh, they're not as, men aren't as hot as they think they are, and women aren't as lowly as they're being forced to be. Don't, don't get me wrong. God made Adam to rule creation and woman to assist. But she's like a chief, what do they call, senior vice president in God, Inc., Creation, Inc., and yet men end up teaching women, treating women like they're the janitors. That's the problem. But then as a consequence in our culture, women are trying to become CEO and principal officer. But that's a mistake too. God puts us in the places, and when we function in those places, we function beautifully. All right, so Jesus was on his way. The crowds almost crushed him. I don't think Luke was exaggerating here. He's just letting you know that Jesus' ministry, he was so popular, so sought after. The crowds were so thick that he almost got crushed. Do you remember that time he was at the lake and he said, put me in the boat, let me go out to the, shore, uh, to the sea a little while? I'm sure it was to give himself a little breathing room, you know, be able to speak to the crowds from a distance. He was almost crushed. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years but no one could heal her. Another of the gospel tells us she spent all her money on doctors and they weren't able to help her. 
She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. Jewish men, according to the law of Moses, had to wear clothes with fringes on them. This is a modern adaptation of this. It's called a prayer shawl. But religious Jews actually wear fringes, these things here, all the time as part of their clothing. They have a t-shirt on with the fringes sticking out. But in the Bible times, they wore robes, which this kind of looks like, and the robes had fringes on them. It was part of the law of Moses. God required this of Jewish people. So, Jesus was dressed exactly how God required him to be dressed, just like all the other Jewish people were dressed. He had fringes on his robe. And that's, it says, she touched the edge of his cloak. Well, if it was the edge, it was the fringe. So you could just imagine, Jesus is standing there in a big crowd, and this woman, she believes in him. She thinks to herself, if I can just, just, just touch him, even the edge of his clothes, maybe I'll get better. I, I think he can heal me. But she's so humble, she doesn't want to say, hey, heal me, heal me, heal me, Lord, Lord, Lord. She just, you know, looks around while nobody's looking, and she... And then all of a sudden, Jesus goes, who touched me? And the disciples are looking at him like he's nuts. What do you mean, who touched you? You're being crushed to death. Everybody's touching you. What do you mean, who touched you? And he says, no, 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 that's not what I mean. Somebody touched me. I just felt power go out of me. Now, the woman, she's the only one in the crowd who's not looking for somebody. You know how that guilty look is. Everybody in the crowd's like, who touched the master? Who touched the master? And the woman's like, <laughs> you know. <laughs> she couldn't hide. But she was also glowing. She was so happy. She'd been sick for 12 years, and now she's better instantly. So she fessed up. The woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. Oh, this is so sweet. In the presence of all the people, she told him why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. And then he said to her, Daughter, he called her daughter, how sweet is that? He immediately, immediately, the first word out of his mouth is to put her at ease. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. He's such a gentle man. Let me explain to you this story with a little more cultural background to help you understand it even better. A Jewish man, especially a holy man, cannot touch somebody who's bleeding. It's against the law of Moses. It's pro it would have defiled him and made him unclean. So maybe that's part of the reason she wanted to do it in secret. Like, can I touch you? I'm unclean. It's like a leper. You can't touch me. I'm bleeding. I've been, ble I've been unclean for 12 years. I can't touch anybody. Poor woman. She comes up and without anybody looking, touches him. Now she admits to touching him. Thou darest touch us, the Lord? That's what you would expect from a Pharisee or a Sadducee. You've made me unpure. I can't serve in the temple now. Beat this woman. I've got to go purify myself. Uh-uh, none of that. Daughter, it's okay. You did good. You did the right thing. And God has rewarded you. You're healed. Go in peace. So I'm sure everybody's amazed at the miracle. Everybody was amazed that he wasn't upset that this unclean woman touched him. 
He's gracious and loving and kind and gentle. This chapter seems to feature women. But really, it's featuring the love of Jesus for women. Isn't he like the ultimate man, ladies? Don't you just wish he was available? <laughs> he's, he's just perfect. He's awesome. Guys, he's an example. Treat your women like Jesus treated women. Why did she get healed? Because she had faith. More than a mustard seed, or at least as much as a mustard seed. Why did the disciples freak out in the storm? Because they didn't. And that's just so funny to me. Jesus chose 12, and not one of them had the faith of this woman. They knew him. They walked with him. They saw him raising people from the dead. This woman didn't, as far as we know. She just heard about him. She had more faith in him than Peter did. But you know what? Let me encourage you. In a sense, you're like this woman. You've never met Jesus. You didn't see him do any miracles. You've never seen him face to face. You haven't been in his presence. And yet you believe in him. You've given him your soul. You've trusted him with your life. You call him Lord and Master. And you cannot wait for him to bring you home. You know, I, I don't want your head to explode, but that's an attaboy right there. Maybe you do have the faith of a mustard seed. It's pretty cool. Faith is a key to seeing miracles. It might even be the key, but we're going to see in a minute there's more. Let's just say it's significant to seeing miracles. If you want to see God move, you have to trust that he can and believe that he will. Now, a lot of us in this camp, us non-Pentecostals, we believe God can do anything. But our Pentecostal brothers have led the way, at least in this, and that he will. Because faith is both. It's not just believing God can, it's believing that he will. Go, check it out, read the scripture, you'll see it's the same. But faith isn't the only requirement to see God move. It's only one. It's a big one, but it's only one. We can't control God with our faith. If faith was the only requirement, God would be the genie, we would be the master. I've got enough faith, therefore everything I say, you must do, right? Of course, that's ridiculous. That's not how God is. We don't control him. We cannot control God with our faith, but we can encourage God with our faith. It's kind of like when a child comes up and demands something from you, you say, yeah, not in this life. But when they come up and ask you nicely for something, you will bend over backwards to make it happen. But as soon as they try to manipulate you, it's like, huh, ain't happening. Kind of like that. We can't control God with our faith, but we can encourage God with our faith. And there are times when despite our faith, our request will not be answered. You can have the faith of a handful of mustard seeds and still not get what you want because faith is not the only key to seeing God move. Here's how I know that. Jesus was in the garden just right before they were going to take him away and crucify him. And he prayed, Father, let this cup pass from me. If at all possible, God, I don't want to go to the cross. Did he go to the cross? Yes, he did. Did he have enough faith for his prayer to be answered? Uh, yes, he did. And yet it wasn't. Now, he had a backup prayer. 
Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And that should be our backup prayer for everything we ever pray. I use this as an example because it's so, you know, we, we need it and we'll all experience it, every one of us, something like this. My aunt's dying in the hospital of cancer. She's only got a few days to go. Lord, please heal her. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. We have a hard part with that. Because in our minds, we can't see anything good coming out of our aunt's death. Well, that's not your, that's above your pay grade. That's not for you to see. For you to see is to trust God that He will do the right thing. If she needs to live, she'll live. If it's better that she dies, she'll die. Let God decide. So I'm at this conference in Phoenix for most of the week. This, just this, this last week. And we're listening to one of the speakers and some friends I haven't seen in like, 15, 20 years, um, sitting with them, enjoying their company. And the lady, the lady and her husband, her husband had gotten up and left a few minutes ago. She sits down and she just looks at me and she's, her countenance had fallen. She was so happy and now she's so miserable. Like, what just happened? She said, we just got a message that one of our dear friends back home was told he's got six months, maybe a year to live. What do you say? I mean, you're sitting in the middle of a conference, for starter. You can't get up and hug them and start praying with them. It's like, yee, this is an awkward moment. And then what do you say to something like that? But between then, then and the next day, praying for him, praying for them, that God's will would be done in this whole situation, I also learned that this man has a son who's a prodigal. If I remember the story right. And my thought was, you know, I have seen at funerals prodigals come back to faith. When they're brought to their lowest moment of sadness, they come to God for the first time. Because a prodigal really is somebody who was flirting with God but never really in. But this is the catalyst to get them in. And I couldn't help but wonder, and I shared this with her. I said, you know, God will do what God does. and we, Of course, I'll be praying that he's healed. But you know, it made me think that maybe God's going to use this to get his son right with God. And she said, yeah, that crossed my mind too. And if you went and asked this man, because he's a man of God, hey, would you mind dying in six months so that your son can spend eternity in heaven with you? The guy's like, no, I'll sign up. Can we do it in three months? I'll die tomorrow. What man of God would not take that deal? Okay, so that's an example of a bad situation that can have a positive outcome. Now, there's a million others that I don't know the positive outcomes to. That's all. But just trust God. He knows what he's doing. He runs the universe. Trust him. So pray, God, please heal my mom. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So faith is not the only requirement. The second requirement is it's got to be according to God's will and timing. Or he's not going to move. And you wouldn't want him to move. Because that would be a mistake. Third thing comes from James, chapter 4. Most people think this is the James, that's the brother of Jesus. You have not, because you ask not. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. Now, I'm getting close to the end of my message, but I don't usually speak this long. And I hate doing that to you, but I got more I want to share with you. So I got to wake you up. Everybody stand up. Hands up. Wiggle the hands. Turn around so you're looking at something other than me. Look at that. Y'all just became Pentecostal. That's awesome. <laughs> turn back around, and you may be seated. Got the blood flowing, got a little humor going. Now you can give me another five minutes maybe to finish up. 
I told you that faith isn't the only thing that moves God, though it's a key. You also have to pray for God's will, His timing, His situation, what He wants to do. The third thing is from James. You don't have because you don't ask, but when you ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives. So, you might have a handful of mustard seed, be able to bounce mountains from one city to the next, but if what you want to happen is wrong, just listen to the crickets chirp. Because nothing's going to happen. Because your motives are bad. I use this example because it's silly and I like it. Somebody can't get to work. Oh God, I need a new Mercedes-Benz so I can get to work. And lo, no Mercedes cometh. See, well, okay God. Any old car will do. I guess I can take a Camaro. What happens, more than likely, is somebody offers you bus fare. And you're all like, dang, I'm asking for a Mercedes and all I get is bus fare? Forgetting the fact that you've got a job in the first place that you're not presently being thankful for, and that your city has buses which you're not presently being thankful for, and that the guy you're sitting next to on the bus might need to come to Book of Life Community Church and give his heart to Jesus, which you're not even thinking about because you're all, all upset you didn't get your Mercedes. How many of you have ever had those weird divine appointments where you were somewhere you shouldn't have been and something amazing happened because of it? Let me see your hands. Wow, most of you. This is an old story because it was so profound to me. I probably had a million in between then and now, but I remember this one. I was lost on the subway of New York, which is nowhere you want to be at night because you can. your next stop could be death. I was lost. We came to a train platform. You know, we're underground. We're in the bowels of the universe here. You know, next level down is the B train. The level under that is where the devil makes camp. Okay? We're in the bowels of the earth. Bad things happen in subways. Everybody knows it. You've all seen the movies. Come to a train platform. One woman standing on the platform. Boy, did I feel bad for her. She's alone on this train platform. She comes onto the train to ask me how to find her stop. I said, lady, I'm lost too. But while we're here, do you know Jesus? She said, no. I shared with her the gospel. And would you like to receive him? She said, yeah, I would. She prayed with me, opened her eyes. She said, oh, this is my stop. Handed her my phone number. Off, the door's closed. True story. Lord, please don't let us get lost on the subway today. Let us have a smooth and easy trip. Amen. Sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers. There's a song that says that, and I love that song. Faith, God's will and timing, the right motives, and the fourth and final thing is also found in James 5.16. It says, therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Notice it doesn't say the prayer of a righteous man. I mean the prayer of a man. It says the prayer of a righteous man. Righteousness matters in our communion with God. Don't expect to see a miracle from God if you aren't. Righteous? Righteous people have an in with God. Unrighteous people don't. Now, the word is man. The Bible is male-oriented. But in this context, the implication is obvious. It could just as easily be translated a righteous person. The prayer of a righteous person is effective and powerful. So walk right with God. 
start shaking loose some mountains. There's a verse in Romans that I'm going to close with. Because Luke 8, even though it has seven amazing lessons in it, several of them focus in on faith. So I guess if I had to say what's Luke 8 about, I guess I'd have to say it's about faith. But faith to move mountains is not that important. There's going to be people on the last day who said, Lord, Lord, didn't we do miracles in your name? And he'll say, I never knew you. That's not the kind of faith I really want you to have, though that'd be cool. You need the kind of faith that saves your soul from hell. That's the kind of faith you need. And the kind of faith that pleases God. Romans 10 says it this way. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Put your hand in the hand of the man that stills the water. Please join me in prayer. Lord God, I trust you. I believe in you. And I feel horrible at those times that I don't, when my faith slips and I panic in the stormy seas. Oh, Lord, help me to trust you like that woman did. Help me to trust you even like a grain of mustard seed, a whole handful of them, in a righteous way. And not just me, Lord, for my brothers and sisters who are sitting here, for those who know you, those who don't know you, may they come to believe in you. May you set up divine appointments for each one of us, so much so that when we get a flat tire, may we praise your name for it, because we'll anticipate that divine appointment. Lord, guide our every steps for the perfect destiny for everybody, we pray in Jesus' name. And all of God's children say, Amen.